Lampshade Media presents Pizza Smudging with Matt Loxley. It is my pleasure to bring you on here at Lampshade Media Presents Pizza Smudging. Wow, thank you for having me. Pizza Smudging, that's fun. I like the name. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's very playful, and uh, it's also very spiritual. This is a, a, a spiritual act of uh, creating energy in a room by burning usually sage or Palo Santo, but, uh, but this is Yeah, Lampshade burning Media. like a DiGiorno's. <laughs> that's especially classy this morning for breakfast i had a third of a signature select triple meat frozen pizza um i don't think it made my apartment more spiritual it just smells very sad it's mixing <laughs> with my candles was that leftovers from last night or did you uh, cook yourself a fresh absolutely uh, pizza this morning no <laughs> uh when i wake up i go on a run and then i come back and i, I just bite into a frozen pizza uh, no, it was, it was from last night, but I didn't actually cut it. So, you know, it was like an, when I say a third of the pizza, I mean, it was like a third that I just, you know, bit into <laughs> like a, like a lamb shank, but that sounds like more like a New York pizza than a Chicago pizza. Chicago pizza sucks. Don't, oh, I don't know oh, if I can say oh, that, but oh, I don't, damn. you better not let your Chicago fans hear that. No, so many people I know in Chicago don't like chicago pizza uh it's like a tourist thing i mean the oh people, my god most, really yeah i mean most of the people i know <laughs> we get domino's or you get like a neighborhood pizza place i wouldn't say new york is better because like new york's a crappy city too but i don't know that the deep dish is i'm, I'm not going to speak on it i don't think i'm gonna get in trouble <laughs> if you're in trouble you're already there man <laughs> <laughs> Got no Chicago pride, no New York pride. Like, still got Columbus. Well, pride? I, should, I have Chicago pride. I like the Cubs. Oh, okay. And uh, I live in a gentrified neighborhood, so that's that's showing Chicago pride in some sense. <laughs> How long have you been there now? I've been here about a year and a half, so not not that long. But I I feel like I know it a lot better than would. Well, that's of course you know it better after living there. But I feel I've, I'm settling in. That's I'll good. Yeah, I remember when I when I first saw you uh, was sometime in 2019, and uh, I was talking to Wonder Dog like, "Who do I need to get on the show?" and and your name was brought up, and then you were leaving town almost immediately after I <laughs> saw you perform <laughs> over at the Shadow Box. I think I might have seen you first at that, uh, and I've talked about this before on the show, but the uh, that Game of Thrones roast. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, I was Arya Stark on that. <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh i had forgotten that's so funny they wanted me to be joffrey because i do i bear a, a strong resemblance to joffrey but there's it's like really depressing to like purposefully go out and get the costume and be like yeah like i look like this inbred person so um <laughs> i convinced enough people that i looked like aria shaved my face you know got the wig but the part that was fun is you know, she has that dagger. So I went on Amazon to try and find like a cheap plastic dagger for like seven or eight bucks. And I ordered one 
and it came and it's a real knife it's like a nine inch real knife and it cost me seven dollars oh. and it has wolves on it like it's so cheaply made but it's a real ass dagger and now I, I just have it in my in my knife drawer because like that's <laughs> it's like a part of me when you say knife drawer i'm imagining that you mean like your kitchen knives yeah no i do i i didn't <laughs> did you cut that pizza with it last night <laughs> so luckily no but i i recently so the where i live now i live by myself for the first time and i didn't have all that kitchen stuff like i didn't have knives or forks or anything so when I first moved here, I I did I used that that like Amazon Arya Stark dagger to cut vegetables. Um, <laughs> it was the only knife I had, so I would I would have like plastic forks, and then I would pull out this like eight inch dagger to like chop a carrot. That's so awesome. So when you made the move to Chicago, I mean you're you're, you're pretty young still, right? Like this was like a big a big adventure, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess when you move somewhere when you're young, it's like an adventure. I, I guess I've never heard when someone's like 40 and they move somewhere like, wow, you're on a new adventure. I've not heard that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I like to think I'm pretty young. I'm 23. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're a baby. And yeah, you, I'm a baby. <laughs> and so and so you moved to Chicago. And did you move for, did you have like a, a job lined up already or were you going to, I'm, I'm imagining it might be a little bit of both, uh, go to uh, kind of like give your career uh, in comedy a little boost or? Yeah, yeah. It was It was both. I mean. I knew I wanted to move to a bigger comedy city. Mainly I wanted to have just a bigger scene, like more of an improv scene, more just things to explore. And so I, I pretty much knew I was going to do New York or Chicago. And I just applied to every possible job I could find in both of them. And I got one in Chicago first. So that's where I moved. Is Remarkably little thought went into it. Had you already been a fan of uh, both cities as far as the, the scene and, and things like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, New York is, you know, in Columbus, I did stand-up mainly, and New York is much more cutthroat for stand-up. Not that Chicago is like a walk in the park. I mean, <laughs> comics here are, are, are really good, but I think I liked the alt scene of Chicago a little more. I feel like, you know, I can't speak on it. I don't, I've not lived in New York, but Chicago's alternative comedy scene, I feel like is kind of stupid in like a really fun, approachable way. Whereas some of the stuff that I've I've done and seen in New York is a little smarter, and I think I was kind of in a dumb mood. I kind of wanted to do stupid stuff. I'm young, like I wasn't... more silly. Yeah, like I I have a piece that, and see, this is how you know I'm pretentious. Now I call it a piece, but <laughs> I I have this number where, long story short, the song Independence Day by Martina McBride plays, and I eat photographs of her. <laughs> There's. There's more context to it than that, but I think that that's the main bit of it. And I feel like Chicago is a place for that. <laughs> <laughs> so you and you did so didn't you do some work with like hashtag and do some improv in Columbus too? Yeah. Yeah, I started off doing improv before stand up. So I've been doing that longer and probably a little better at improv. Yeah, so I did improv with hashtag. I did a couple I didn't work in their main cast, um, but I did improv uh, at Ohio State, and I did some work. I ran some workshops, and then I did all of their queer shows. Or I would, I would do a lot of improv guest shows. So like, I'm a, I'm a good stand-up or sketch performer to open for an improv troupe, and then I would like join in whatever the troupe was. Yeah. So I didn't, I wasn't like a member of one, but I hopped around a lot. Yeah, kind of just uh, getting a feel here and there. Yeah. 
I'm curious. When are we gonna When are we gonna see you on the uh, on the Second City uh, roster? <laughs> uh, probably. Well, I guess Second City is still open. A lot of the, like IO shut down permanently because of the pandemic. Oh, you know, I um, wasn't even thinking about that. Yeesh. Yeah, I mean, Second City will survive. They have a better business model, in the sense of like they are more of a a business. IO is a little. I, I don't want to call IO scrappy because it's not. They were always kind of on the margin. Yeah, so Second City is kind of a pay-to-play system. Most most of the improv things here are, yeah. um, and, and and that's not new. You have to take at least a year's worth of classes through one of the the main schools. That would be your IO or your Second City or your your crowd or your annoyance. But IO and Second City are the big two, and you take a year of classes. And these classes are like four hundred dollars each, and you have to take like five or six. Oh wow. Yeah. So you take all of those, and then once you've done that. You can do it, so you can take a year at I.O. and then you can audition at Second City, or you can do a year at Second City and then audition at I.O. It's, it kind of goes both ways. But once you do that, you can start auditioning, and you're eligible to be considered for the house teams and things like that. But you're looking at a pretty substantial, you know, more than $1,000 investment to get to that point, and it's a lot of doing 10 p.m. shows on a Tuesday with your classes. And, and there's certainly a space for that. I think the, they've both produced, obviously, great people, but... That, I don't think that was necessarily a goal of mine when I moved here. I wanted to do yeah. more improv, but not so much in the sense that I, I, I guess I didn't see improv as like the thing that I wanted to focus on. When I when I've gone to Chicago, it's like it's always a thing where it's like, oh, I gotta see Second City because like so many greats have come out of that. Like, house. oh yeah, I mean, there it's one of those things too. Like to a certain point, the institution just has been around for so long that it's going to attract just the highest volume of people. Yeah. So you're going to get the super talented people in there. But yeah, I've not I've not done any classes at Second City. Part of it too, it, it depends on the kind of improv, like not to get super improv theory, which is really annoying, but <laughs> each theater has its own ethos more or less and you know, Second City is very much improv as a tool to create good sketch comedy. And that's why you see SNL coming out of there. Yeah. And then IO is very much into the whole idea that improv is is truth and honesty and the humor comes from playing very realistic people in wacky scenarios. And then you've got some of your other places like the crowd where the training there is a little bit more on make an exciting and interesting choice. So that might be your improv where it's like, I'm a pirate and I have wings. I mean, they do better than that, but you know, <laughs> the, all the schools kind of have their own thing that they focus on. And I'm, I've always gravitated in comedy more towards the the, the raw, unfiltered, emotional intimacy. So I, I, I liked the I.O. curriculum the most. So that's the one I went with. Oh, nice. And can that be also just dramatic, or is it always uh, have a comedic bent? Yeah, so there there is drama prop out there. It's not nearly as popular for good reason. Because, um, <laughs> you know, bad improv is excruciating, but it's not. it's usually not offensive or, like, it doesn't attack your sensibilities, but... Think of like a a really well performed dramatic improv is heart wrenching and beautiful, but and you have that in some comedic ones too. You have those intimate moments, but imagine like a really the worst improv team you've ever seen. But instead of them doing a whole set about how they are all in high school and have a lot of pimples, like instead of doing that set, they're doing a set about we are all waiting to get a heart transplant or like we all have terminal cancer. You know, it just like that would be horrible, just like yeah, terribly, terribly bad. But people do it. There are people out there that do really good dramatic improv. I am not one of them. 
Yeah, I guess that would be flexing a different muscle in the uh, in the acting realm. I guess as far as that goes, right? Yeah, I feel like there's with, with comedy you have so much leeway to just kind of be entertaining. But I feel with dramatic stuff you can't you have to have a real plot line. Um, and improv does not always succeed on the merits of plot. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I guess it would need some sort of some sort of narrative to go off of to make a story complete in that way, wouldn't it? Yeah, you'd have to have some stakes. You'd have to have setup. Um, right. Otherwise, you know, you can't have every scene where someone's crying about their mom dying. I mean, you could. <laughs> I've only done dramatic improv once, and. It was a really good exercise. Like I came away thinking, wow, this was a great way to stretch my muscles. And I never want to do this in a show. It wasn't in a performance then? No, no, no. We, we used it as like a, like a practice. Uh, so okay. rather than doing our normal comedy practice, we were like, let's, let's see if we, it was, you know, it goes to the whole idea of emotional truth. If you can play a scenario straight where, and it's, it's an exercise that comedic, that like comedy improv teams use all the time where you get a, a scene and it's, horribly dramatic and difficult and you try to play it as real as possible and then they change the details but keep the premise the same so the details are wacky and now you play it with the same level of intensity and it's funny like an example oh, wow. once i was working with working with a team and we had um two people two of us had to do a scene where it was a husband and wife and the wife was telling her husband that she'd had a miscarriage and you know we played it as real as possible like very very sad but then you switch it around and it's like uh now do that same scene with the same level of emotion but have it be about someone like you went to the store and you they were out of apple fritters like and you have to break that news to him so dramatic dramatic improv is like a a, a good learning tool it i don't see it in shows as much but so that's like how you can kind of cause the surprise element in that thing is like using the emotional weight of that for something silly. Oh yeah. Right. Absolutely. You know, the, you see so many uh, comedians uh, become really good actors and then eventually become dramatic actors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that that improv instinct is, is a, is a part of that or? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I, I think it's less that, a lot of comedians become great dramatic actors. I think a lot of comedians are good actors just naturally mm-hmm. or just as part of their skill set. And they don't get asked to do it in a dramatic format that often. Because of like typecasting? Yeah. I mean, Joan Rivers, great example. She wanted to be a dramatic actress. That was her, that was her fame goal. And I mean, obviously she was an amazing comedian, but she had always said, I want to be taken seriously as a dramatic actress. Like that was, that was her plan when she, you know, tried to tried to first break into show business, or um, Cecily Strong, on SNL said that she she went to school for drama and she said she remembered doing a monologue, um, for her class and it was supposed to be dramatic and everyone was laughing at her and she thought she was doing like a great dramatic job, and then she kind of clicked for her. She's like, oh, I guess I'm funny. Um, huh. So I think a lot of comedians just I think a lot of comedians would be happy being dramatic actors. Um. I don't think it goes the other way. Yeah, and that's interesting too. Like uh, when you have a like a, a popular, award-winning, a dramatic actor try to do comedy and not be able to hit the punches. Mm-hmm. And that's that's seems to be fairly common that it, you you can have crossover from comedy to dramatic, but not not as easily the other way around. Yeah, which is weird. I don't know. 
it's one of those topics that I only have so much insight into because I'm not rich and famous winning Academy Awards. But right. and it's also kind of like, gosh, do you think and do you think like Joaquin Phoenix is sad if he's not if he's not the best person in a rom com? I wouldn't be if I was Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. So I found this interesting when I was, I was, I, I Googled you and found a story from when you were in OSU and they did a little write up on you. And I didn't realize, oh. and I, I can't remember if I, if we had talked about this before or not, but you majored in, in economics and in Islamic studies, right? Yes, <laughs> I did. What does an American white gay dude like yourself find in Islamic studies to major in it? Like, where is the, uh, Where's the connection there? Yeah. Um, it's an unusual study for almost anyone in America, it seems like. No, I mean, my major had like seven people. Wow. Yeah, so I would say, for me, I, I came in as an economics major. And I can't say I put much thought into that choice. But I took my freshman year, I took a class on Middle Eastern economic development. And the part that really stuck out to me in the class wasn't any of the, the economic stuff, but how... In the Middle East, in North Africa, so much of the economic and political situation uh, has like a very strong cultural element, which isn't unique to the region, but the cultural element there in the context was so different than what you know I was used to in the West. So um, honestly, I just that class was really interesting, and I, I was like, I'd like to learn more about this. So I took more classes, and then was going to do Middle Eastern studies, which would be your like international policy type focus. So that would be your your folks that are studying military movement or policy. But a senior, I was a freshman, told me that she didn't like that major and she wishes she had done Islamic studies so she could have understood culture more. And again, with my life, I was like, that's enough information to make a choice. So I, I added that as a second major and then, you know, learned a bit of Arabic, uh, spent some time studying abroad in Oman. Yeah, it just kind of, it's kind of like, a, this is interesting. I'm, I want to learn more about it. And then I just kept saying yes to all of the things that happened after that. Wow. Yeah, that's super fascinating. So are you fluent now? No, God, no. Arabic is tricky. My, my language skills have definitely gone down since college. And, you know, I was studying abroad at the time. So obviously I was at my peak then. But Arabic is very dialectical. So you kind of pick, you sh if you want to go into the field, you pick a, a region that you kind of focus on. And that's your dialect. Some dialects are pretty straightforward. And all of them come from your modern standard. So your modern standard or, or your classical, like the Arabic that you're taught in a school in the United States is the Arabic that you would see someone on Al Jazeera use in a news broadcast. So that's the Arabic they use. That's very formal, okay. very stylized. Kind of like a Pacific. Uh, yeah, the transatlantic tra accent. Transatlantic. Or, what am I saying? Yes. <laughs> anyway, yeah, the transatlantic thing. Yeah, yeah, it's similar. It's kind of like, this is a bit more of an extreme comparison, like Shakespeare to how people talk today. It's just very formal. Yeah. And you wouldn't use that same type of Arabic in a conversation with a friend. But that's right. the one that everyone learns. But then dialects can be very different. Sometimes a dialect, like if you look at the Gulf, the Gulf is a little bit, it's pretty close to the modern standard relative to the other countries. Gulf being your Saudi Arabia, Oman, Bahrain, UAE, etc., that one you can kind of get away with your your modern standard, but let's say you go to like Egypt or you go to if you go to Morocco and you speak the the formal Arabic to a taxi driver, they're gonna they aren't gonna know what you're saying. They're gonna stare at you. Really? They'll understand you, but it's like the most touristy thing you could do. Their colloquial is a mix of Arabic, 
in French. Oh, it's, wow. Okay. Yeah, so if you want to work in the region or work on the topics, you kind of pick an area, pick a dialect, and then you spend significant time there learning it. It's very much an immersion language. It's Yeah. I don't know of any any fluent speakers that have not spent years in the Middle East. Yeah. Unless they grew up in, you know, in an Arabic speaking family. Yeah, and that's that's fascinating how the language uh covers such a large part of the uh of the world and then changes so dramatically like that within the the areas it spoke, you know. And that actually that oh, yeah. brings me back around to how economics ties to that for you because you were talking about how you were first into economics. And it's weird. It's always kind of economics is always interesting to me in that it, it also touches on tribalism and like oh, yeah. social issues in, in such a profound way. Right. Mm-hmm. I think of like emergence theory. Are you are you familiar with that? It rings a bell. Could you give me a primer? Yeah, it's and I don't want to like pretend uh, I know a lot of things. But I do listen to a lot of podcasts, and Radio Lab has an excellent podcast on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so if you're interested in this, it's 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 basically how an uh, organization emerges out of chaos, and how trends form, and how people, groups of people, make a decision together without organizing. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, yeah. So the fact that in Morocco, the language sounds almost you know unrelatable to in the Gulf or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, nobody makes that decision. Nobody guides that, right? And it just, right, right. for whatever reason, that just kind of like these trends emerge, right? I, I always find that fascinating. It just kind of bakes my noodle, you know? Yeah. We only see the current state of it. So it's almost like, how did it get here? And then thinking of 30 years from now, it's going to be different than it is today. And I'm not going to have noticed that change. Yeah. That messes with my head. Yeah, like the boiling frog situation, basically. Oh, yeah. God, and what a sad experiment. <laughs> I, I'm assuming that was always a thought experiment, but... Oh, I... <laughs> I'm going to Google that right now. I just assumed <laughs> that they did that. We just we just really just want to find out if the frog will actually jump or not. <laughs> Hopefully they were oh. at least eating it, but... Okay, so the boiling frog is a fable describing a frog being slowly boiled alive. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So oh, no, then, no frogs the ni- were injured in the making of this podcast. Well, don't, don't say that too soon. In the 19th century, they did some experiments, and it suggests that the, the premise is true to an extent. If they did the heating very gradually, it could work. But when they've tried to do it more recently, contemporaneously, the frog jumps out. Uh, well, that makes so sense. frogs are smarter today. Yeah, well, that's probably uh, so many died in the in the past boilings that uh, <laughs> evolution worked out that little uh, kink, huh? Yeah, apparently so. I like to think they're doing this outside of a lab. So if the frog jumps out of the of the pot, like the frog is free, and not just inside of a college, <laughs> you know, room. Anyway. Are you uh, you find yourself more on the uh, the Keynes or the or the Hayek side of things in the economics uh, debate? So I w- <laughs> I would say the biggest thing I learned about economics in college was that I don't know anything about economics. Um, <laughs> so that sounds Hayek to me. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's very much like, and everyone I know, it's like you. The more you learn about it, the more you're like, oh. There's so much here, and even people that have studied this for decades are split on how to interpret things. So that's mm-hmm. why when um, 
you know, when I was in college, people would ask me, like some of my family members would say, like, is this a good or bad thing economically? And I'm like, I literally am so not qualified to have an opinion on this. It's, and then it's pretty damn close to uh, philosophy. I mean, it was philosophy. The origin of economics is philosophy. You know, you've got your Adam Smith and your other folks who exactly economics wasn't really empirical. There wasn't a there weren't there wasn't a quantitative wing of the field really until the 20th century. And economics had been around for a while before then. I think it was like in the 40s when the shift started, if I'm remembering right, where they started saying, hey, we should do some math. And then today, the field of economics is insanely quantitative. Like if you wanted to, once upon a time before I knew what it entailed, I was like, I'm going to get a PhD in economics. I'm going to learn Arabic and I'm going to do Middle Eastern economic stimulus work. And once upon a time. But then if you wanted to get into an economics PhD program, you will be more prepared for that program if you studied astrophysics as an undergrad than if you studied economics because you just need such a high level of mathematical ability. Wow. And I'm over here like barely doing calculus. I guess, I mean, it makes sense that economics would deal in, in math because, I mean, everything we're doing is a, is a series of uh, ones and zeros, right? Yeah. No, and because, <laughs> you know, the idea of, humans as rational actors in an economic sense that's like a philosophical stance <laughs> you can see when you there's so many empirical studies that are that show examples of humans not acting rationally and you know in economics a rational actor just means you're going to make the choice that is the most economically sound for you so you're going to choose the job that pays you more and gives you the highest utility the highest we'll call it enjoyment that doesn't happen like <laughs> in real life humans are not rational but now that we've introduced numbers to it, we're like, oh, some of these theories don't really work. And that's, that's really what economics is. If you get an undergrad degree in economics, you just learn a whole bunch of theorists that have since been disproved. You don't get to anyone who's like remotely maybe correct until graduate school, which is why people will get an undergraduate degree in economics and end up being Republicans. Huh. Yeah. That's my, that's my opinion. That's not... <laughs> That's not in the curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what they're teaching yet, OSU. I mean, there is a lot of, it seems like there is a lot of right-leaning uh, economists, though, right? Yeah. Best example I can think of is, like, this whole debate between equity and efficiency. So equity, of course, is two people have the same opportunities and the same resources to utilize those opportunities to create economic surplus for themselves. and you know, this is, I didn't expect to get this academic, but I'm, st I'm starting grad school in a week. So this, this worked out. Um, but so that's equity. Efficiency would be this market is running at optimum efficiency. There's not a lot of uh, dead weight loss or, you know, people have jobs. We don't have people that are underutilized. We aren't misutilizing resources. The efficiency versus equity trade-off is the idea, and this, I, I don't know this number exactly. I haven't, I don't quite remember it from my labor economics courses, but let's say you want to institute an affirmative action policy, like a lot of people did in the 1980s, where you say we need to have X number of people from diverse or underrepresented backgrounds work at this company. Now, what they found is doing so might decrease efficiency by a couple percentage points because you're bringing in people who may not have the same background. Those that in the 
And that's not a skill set. That's not a thing that they're not smarter. They're not capable of doing it. It's that the company you're putting them into was built around people who had a privileged background. So there's, there's an adjustment period where people have to figure out how to navigate and those cultures come together. Uh Um, Yeah. But so let's say you lose one, one to 2% of efficiency. Let's assume that's the number. They've also found that when you look at that individual, the underprivileged individual who was given that opportunity, equity increases by an insane amount. I think, I don't know, this number is absolutely not correct, but I think it's in the ballpark. You might be sacrificing 1% of efficiency for a 10% increase in equity. And some economists, so your conservative economists might look at that and say, well, efficiency is the most important metric, so that's unacceptable. But there is a group of left-leaning economists, or as I like to call them, like economists who are human beings, who would look at that and say, oh, this may not, if, if we think that the market being the most efficient is the most important thing, then yeah, this is bad, but people are more important than markets, and therefore, this is a good economic decision. Like, yeah. to me, that's a straightforward question of like, would you sacrifice 1% of profits so that 10 per, so that the 13% of Americans that are black or African-American would have a 10% higher chance at achieving equity? Like, to me, that I think that's like an easy answer. Yes. Right. Um, to a lot of people, a lot of economists, that's, that's a no. Yeah. And I guess a lot of economists can come off or seem to be really cold assholes. Like They have to do so much math. Right, right. So reducing are. people to numbers and <laughs> that efficiency versus equity trade-off, and and you know, I I took that class in like 2018 or 2019. There were people in our class who would raise their hands and were like, "Why is that an acceptable trade-off?" And like, our professor would be like, "It made the lives of this group of people that were historically marginalized like a hundred percent better." Yeah. And then people are like, "Yeah, but the economy was." A half percent lower than the GDP could have been, and it's like, you're right. It's this, it's this like infatuation with numbers, and 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 I'm, like I said, I'm not an economist. I'm nowhere close to an economist. But the, the further I get out from school, I'm more into like the economy isn't real. These numbers aren't real. These are arbitrary measures that we chose to reflect economic health, and um, they don't matter. Like. When they say the economy is doing well or not well, consumer confidence is the number one driver of spending. That has nothing to do with actual situations. If every American felt comfortable spending all of their life savings, would you call that economically sound? No, you wouldn't. That that goes against rational actor theory. But because they have consumer confidence and they're doing spending, we would say the economy is crushing, doing great, even yeah. though people could be like on the the margin of you know losing all of their money at any moment. One of the things I find interesting is that it seems like starting in the early 1900s, big businesses began to realize that they could manipulate us because we make irrational decisions regularly and we don't realize we're making them. And now we've gotten to this point and a lot of this is coming to me because I watched the social dilemma last night (laughs) where, uh, these uh, advertising companies, these companies that make money off of us, you know, seeing their ads, know exactly how to tweak us. It's like flipping a switch for them. They know exactly how to manipulate us and to get what they want out of us. And so those numbers, it's not just like they're looking at the numbers and we're just numbers to them. It's like we, they can actually make us do things. 
right. <laughs> with, with like with because they know those numbers so well, you know. It's like they don't just have to guess, they can literally cause us to do the things that benefit them, which is fucking terrifying, dude. Oh, it's you know it's really like when I think about um tailored ads. Do you remember when when everything first started, like when we first started getting targeted ads, we were all like, "Oh god, that's so creepy." that they can tell I'm interested in this thing. And it still is, because, you know, like, I'm going to say it right now. I bought I bought a terry cloth shirt, which is like, terry cloth is like towel fabric. I got it um, for, like, if I want to go to the pool, you can put on the shirt. It'll dry you off. Mm-hmm. I bought a terry cloth shirt from Tombolo, T-O-M-B-O-L-O. I'm going to say that right now, and Mel, in, like, a week, I want you to let me know if you've seen it pop up on any of your ads. <laughs> um, but, like, we, we used to, like, when that first happened, we're like, oh, this is so creepy. And now I've caught myself almost being like, wow, the algorithm knows me because it'll show me something that I actually do kind of want. And then I'm like, I have to like hit my hand and I'm like, oh no, this is bad. This shouldn't happen. Yeah. Well, I think the thing that, because I already knew that that existed, right? And I knew that's creepy and, you know, I know they're collecting data and I knew all these things kind of like just on on the surface, right? And then that documentary uh, goes in to show just how fine tuned that it is and that depending on where you lie politically and what your tastes are and so on and where what region of the country you're searching from you will get Mm -hmm. different results that are tailored to the thing that google thinks you want to see so for example if you type in climate science in certain parts of the country you're going to get climate science as a hoax is going to be your auto filled Mm. answer they were talking about how the whole flat earth conspiracy has has been uh gotten so popular here recently it it all started based on they found there was like these certain small group of people had these same interests and so then they pushed those videos to other people like them that had similar interests that weren't already interested Mm -hmm. right so then they found that group and then they you know just piled on from there and it's like they basically created you know social media literally created this this conspiracy theory and like the Pizzagate conspiracy theory and so on. Oh my God. Just by uh, the targeting of these videos towards people that they think might be into them. Right. Which that's a lot of power, man. Oh, I know. And it's, it's like, completely unregulated. No, and it's terrible. And I, I have no concept or idea of how you would begin to regulate that kind of stuff. And I know that if I don't know, as someone who's 23 years old, then our, Freaking like seventy-eight-year-old dementia-riddled Congress certainly doesn't know how to do it. Right. Yeah. No, and it's uh, man, it's got it's. It feels like it's got to happen. Like I, I again just watched it last night, so I'm all fired up and <laughs> terrified. It yeah. is. It is really a, a scary, uh, a scary notion of just. Oh my how god! Much power. Isn't it like Black Mirror? Remember when Black oh, Mirror dude. premiered and we're like, oh, what a crazy dystopia. And then like seven years later, we're like, oh, this is real. No, it honestly watching that movie, I was thinking, I think it's the second episode of Black Mirror, not the disgusting first episode. Oh, <laughs> you mean the, the pig fucking? <laughs> yeah, I think it's the second episode <laughs> where the people are on uh, those uh, bicycles, uh, the stationary bikes. And they have yes, to, yes. They, they have to create so much energy and then they can spend their whatever their their earnings are, are spent on what entertainment they want to see yeah and dude it was i was watching that and i'm like holy shit this is black mirror and you know what the other thing i was thinking of 
is uh, I don't know if you're into Westworld at all, uh, but uh, season three of Westworld had Rehoboam. Did you see this? I've not. No. Okay. So quick synopsis: Rehoboam is uh, is an artificial intelligence that has all of the information about everybody in the world and has literally taken over and controls everything because it knows what everybody wants and it knows everything, right? Right. And, and at the time, I'm like, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is a commentary on, on, this is a science fiction commentary on social media, I think. And that's very interesting. And I enjoyed it. And then after I watched the, the social dilemma last night, I was like, oh, fuck, it's not a commentary. It's real. <laughs> you know, it's fucking real. <laughs> they actually did it. Yeah. God. Was it good? Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was fantastic as far as information wise and the the people that they had on the show were all people that created a lot of the technology. And when they created it, they didn't fully understand what they were creating, you know. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. They describe it as like getting more of a dem- demographic is just like turning a knob. Oh, you want more uh viewers from Korea? Then turn that knob, you know. And right. uh, and they literally can decide, you know, how much money they want to make on certain ads and things like that by pushing them in certain ways, you know? Yeah. They called it the disinformation age, which I think yeah. is pretty interesting. No, I mean, you might have a friend. I know I have one person that comes to mind who was just completely off social media, living their life, doing their shit day to day. And I am so deeply jealous of how happy they are. Not in like this, like, I'm not hooked to social media thing. It's hard to give up social media when you do comedy because there is a, a component that you need it for. Yeah, like um, marketing and whatnot. Mar- I mean, that's how you get, I, you get... I've never once gotten booked via email. It's, I've had club owners message me on Facebook Messenger. It's like, yeah. <laughs> that is how, that's how you get gigs. Um, is that true in but, other cities as well? Because I, I used to, when I booked for my uh, music podcast, I would book via emails. And when I started booking comedy, it was like, yeah, no, just use the messenger. <laughs> it, I think it depends. I think it's level-based more than anything. Um, until you are above where I'm at, um, you're getting booked on messenger. I mean, I've had people, I've I've submitted via email and I've gotten bookings that way when it's kind of a cold call to like a, to a, a club or an organization rather than a person. Yeah. But even when I've done like the Laugh Factory or, or like, you know, real clubs, it's usually another comic who's producing that show that messages me on Facebook or they text you. I don't know how I was thinking about this after I watched that show. I was, you know, sitting here just thinking about it. And I was like, how the hell in this day and age would I promote anything? Nobody's yeah. looking at at telephone poles these days you know Uh, do you have any ideas (laughs) what do you do i mean you just have to use it in a way that's it's like playing with fire in a way at at that point yeah i mean uh i don't have any interest in marketing like as a, a field but it is digital marketing is like the thing if you want to go into that space now like it's not i mean granted you know if you if you if your market your demographic or 45 and up, yeah, you'll figure out a TV ad, but there was a, a professor that did a, an assignment to his digital marketing class, I think it was, um, where they had to try and go viral. And what they did was the they put on a fake end-of-semester party. Like, they made it look like their professor had 
brought in cupcakes and treats for everyone to enjoy and that no one else had showed up except for a few students. And they took pictures of him looking sad with all these, um, all this good food in the background. And they tweeted it and they're like, my professor did an end of semester party and none of the students came with a sad face. And it got like tens of thousands of retweets and hundreds of thousands of engagements. And it was on BuzzFeed and news articles. And oh, wow. their assignment was to figure out how to go viral. Like that is what marketing looks like now. That would yeah. be, it would be that, except you would see the brand that you'd see that it's a Carvel ice cream cake in the picture, you know? Wow. Which is insane because, you know, people who for a career are internet engaged. So think of like your, their writers too, like Jabuki Young White is a huge Twitter presence. But like people who go viral on a, on a regular basis, that's not easy either. So to think of like people who are figuring it out in a business sense, I think they're sociopaths. Like if <laughs> Like, like a company oh, yeah. that successfully markets that way, like the person who comes up with that idea has killed someone. I think that I come back to this story a lot because I, I learned this, uh, like most things, through uh, entertainment. Uh, Adam yeah. Ruins Everything is a fantastic yeah. TV show. And I definitely recommend if you guys uh, have the uh, opportunity to get True TV uh, through one of your streaming services, check it out. It's well-sourced. They have all the sources for every fact flashes on the screen, but then when you go to the website, you can look up the episodes, facts, and uh, check them yourself. But they had an episode on diamonds, and it blew my mind to find out that prior to like 1920, nobody felt any obligation to buy an engagement ring. Mm, okay. It, a diamond engagement ring was not something that people did. And De Beers Diamond Company literally invented the engagement ring. I mean, it was a thing in like uh, royalty in England and shit like that, right? But they right. invented the idea that we should all be buying our fiancés an engagement ring, and they invented how much we should pay for it. Yeah, which was two three months, months salary, of, right? It started out as two months, and then they decided later, actually, three months, <laughs> arbitrarily. You know, based on how much they wanted to make. And at the same time they're doing this, they're also hoarding diamonds and locking them away from the market to artificially increase mm. the, the price of diamonds. Yeah, and it's an now, artificial shortage. A hundred years later, everybody thinks culturally that it is a, that it is an absolutely imperative that you buy a diamond engagement ring. And that scares oh. the shit out of me because back then when they did that that power move what a what a fucking bold move that was they didn't have the technology we have to manipulate people you know yeah they didn't have oh i mean a, a, a tenth of it it's i understand the diamond thing but i'm guilty of like there are circumstances where that's happened and i'm fine with it because i like it for example popcorn at a movie theater that was not a thing that you did. People didn't like when they had movie. Granted, you know they didn't have VCRs in like 1915, but yeah. those weren't like an early thing. They were like, you know, it became a oh, of course you have to have popcorn and a coke every time you see a movie. I fucking love that. I love eating popcorn and drinking like a large coke and you know peanut M and M's. Like God, I love that shit. I love movie theaters. Yeah, I love um, sneaking it in. Oh, I mean, I typically I'm very lucky both in Columbus, where I used to go to Gateway all the time, um, and in Chicago, Music Box. Like I, I, I'm very lucky I've had a, a couple of really great independent theaters that I've been able to go to, so I try to support them. I definitely do the drink and the popcorn in there, 
Yeah, yeah. They almost Definitely always buy have from a candy hidden somewhere. Yeah. 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 Fuck AMC though. Yeah, fuck AMC. <laughs> I, I worked at a I worked at a Regal for five years um in high school and college. Um and yeah, no. Sneak in your candy, but if it's if it's a local theater, try and buy the popcorn. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, hey, I got a new segment. Uh do you want to hear a story? Of course. All right. Well, you're about to hear one with uh, my good friend Sammy Dodge, lead singer of the Up All okay. Nights. Here we go. Awesome. <laughs> so there I was. So there I was. So there I was. So there I was. There I was. So 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 there I was. And I was doing this thing I never do because I was going out to eat by myself. And I don't really do that, but I really wanted to this one time because I don't get a lot of days off. And I had a day off and I wanted to go get Chinese food. And it was very specific because if you get Chinese food to go, the fortune cookie doesn't count. And everyone knows that. That's like to go. That's not for you. That's for whoever picks it up. I don't believe in it. But I really want the fortune cookie. And the thing is, if you get Chinese food like three times a week, the fortune doesn't matter at all. But if this is like seasonal or like once or twice a year, that fortune cookie is real and it means something. So I did this. All right. I went out to eat by myself and they have to ask the whole thing. Like, are you waiting for someone? And you have to say no. (laughs) And you have to you know, eat by yourself. And if you just get out your phone, you look like an idiot. You know, there's all these things to it, but I really want the, I want the cookie. So I do what I do and I get that cookie. I'm going to get that, uh, that fortune cookie and I open it up and I, I, you know, break the cookie open and I, I can't eat the whole thing, but you have to eat some of it or it won't come true because it's a terrible cookie. So I eat a little bit of the cookie and I'm looking at the, um, fortune and the fortune says when the time comes, choose the top one the top one and this is like the most intriguing fortune i've ever got like what is this like the top one like i'm going to choose the top card off of a deck of cards is this like a top shelf liquor i don't know but i know when the time comes i'm going to choose the top one and i tell myself right then and there and i make it like a like a firm statement of belief like i believe this fortune and i'm going to do something about it the thing is 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 when i get to get out I, I, I'm leaving the restaurant and I, I get in my car and I'm behind the the Coda bus and I'm behind the 33. I'm behind the Coda bus and I'm not super paying that much attention to it. But if you know the Coda bus, you'll, you'll know that when they put on the brakes, the, the light in the back lights up a sign that says stop. So when they put on the brakes, it says stop, stop, stop. And it lights up and it's telling you it's stopping. But the S is burnt out on this bus. So it's saying top top, top, you know, and I just got this fortune. I just got this cookie and I don't know what to do with myself. So I'm following the bus and I'm like, this is it. I already made the deal with myself. I have to do something. So I'm trying to find a place to park to try to get on this bus and I'm chasing it down. And I'm like, I need to know where it's going to stop and for how long do I have time to get out? So I sort of managed to, I'm a terrible parallel parker. I'm a terrible parker. I'm a terrible driver. Don't let me drive or park or anything like that. But I managed to sort of illegally park and get out of the car and flag down that coat of bus and I get on it because it was the top one and I'm going to ride that bus. 
But what I'm not thinking about the whole time I was worried about the top was I was behind the 33 and I already know where I know where it goes. And it just takes me to my apartment because that's what it does. So I get left back off at my own apartment and I'm like, oh, wow. So now I'm carless and I'm here. You know, there is something like serendipitous about following the bus and it takes you home or something. I'm like, I, you know, you're wondering what the metaphor is. You're trying to make this cookie make sense. But in the end, you're just taking an Uber back to your car, which is where I was. So I took the Uber back to my car, which is like kind of, you know, very poorly parked. And underneath the windshield wiper is a fortune cookie. And I'm walking up slow and I don't know what to do with it. And I pull it out and it's there. It's visceral. It's real. I'm holding it. There's a fortune cookie in its wrapper. And I open it up and I break the fortune cookie and inside of it is a parking ticket. It's a true story. There I was with the parking ticket. You were just listening to Sammy Dodge of the Up All Nights. You can hear more music from them from Spotify, Apple, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, all the things. Check them out. Upallnights.com. There it is, Sammy Dodge, our first storyteller. <laughs> man, wow. This, this dude is a character, man. <laughs> yeah. I expected that story to end with him being hit by the bus, which not have made sense because he's telling the story. You know, <laughs> Like, I thought he died at the end of that story, based on where it was going. <laughs> Yeah, and the the more you know about Sammy, the more surprising it isn't that he that he he skirts death. I think <laughs> <laughs> it was very Twilight Zone. Like the whole setup, I was like, okay, I've been I've been watching a lot of the Twilight Zone lately, and it definitely had that feel like the fortune cookie that signals a bus that you have to catch, but then like you get on the bus and nobody has a face, you know, something like that. <laughs> Yeah, he yeah, the idea that you just have to like uh say yes to anything or something like that, right? You just have to go with this follow the white rabbit, whatever the fuck, right? Yeah, I didn't know I've never heard that the fortune doesn't count if you get it to go. Is that a thing? I've never heard that. <laughs> I don't know. I think I don't know, like all the superstitious stuff. Uh, there's so many different ideas about all of that, right? I don't think I've eaten in a Chinese restaurant. I almost always get it to go, so is that like is it, has every fortune I've had been invalid? I don't know. I I guess it it could be. I don't know. It could be uh, you know the amount of faith you have in that uh, particular <laughs> uh, you know belief. I haven't right. had sit down a sit down meal in a Chinese restaurant uh, since the pandemic because uh, Asian people understand this stuff. Yeah, they all close that shit down like immediately, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you. So you got you got in there right a year before this 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 pandemic hit didn't you yeah i did i got here a little less than a year before we had the full lockdown so you you got to get a little bit of normalcy i guess but you're still settling in anyway yeah i mean what (laughs) this is the smallest of inconveniences but i was like getting i was kind of on like a hot streak with like the shows i was being booked on i was having um you know like (laughs) I was getting booked pretty consistently, and I had like some fun, some really fun gigs coming up in March. Um, I was going to be doing the Laugh Factory again. I was going to be doing. Um, I, I started doing a whole lot more alternative comedy when I moved to Chicago, and I was going to get like a like a feature spot to do like 20 minutes of that at Comedy Sports and like all this kind of stuff. Um, and then everything shut down, and I was like, 
hmm, like I need to learn how to sew and churn butter for when the world, you know, collapses. Like that, those early days of lockdown, we were all, we all thought the world was going to end. Like I, we bought, we bought candles, like not scented candles. We bought power goes out candles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm still like, I'm still thinking like that. I'm like, should I be buying more, you know, gallons of water when I go to the store and like rice and dry rice and beans or something like should I be like stockpiling because yeesh man like yeah it just the hits just keep coming man it's it's been a terrifying time it's it's <laughs> good thing we have funny people to distract us somehow but yeah no we, we had normalcy it was I had like a normal day-to-day -day and like I, I I had like a sense of constancy before it before it happened yeah, but have you made some adjustments to uh, your content to be able to produce content during the time? I mean, obviously, and I've talked about this in great detail with past guests that stand up just doesn't work without an audience. Yeah, have you figured out any angles or anything that you think works? Well, I don't have like a hot. I've never had a hot take on COVID, um, like some people, but I've done. A lot of Zoom shows. I did a lot of those for uh, May and June. I did some more this last month. I don't love them. I mean, I never, especially now when stage time is m more or less non-existent. I say yes to everything. <laughs> yeah. I probably shouldn't. That that's been fine. It's been an okay muscle. Honestly, I, I'm sure a lot of other folks have said this too. But during lockdown, I was so uninspired. Like I didn't have any really emotional energy where I was like, yeah, like pursuing all these cool ideas and stuff. And I've, I toyed around with, and you know, if I was smart, I would have really invested a lot of time in TikTok before it got banned. But I thought briefly, like, should I do digital content? And then part of one of the things that I kind of am at peace with is I'm a pretty patient person. And I was like, I'm going to use this time to not to be like a hippie, but it's like, I'm going to look inward and work on myself and you know ask myself difficult questions and demand answers like real like white woman shit and <laughs> that's what i did i Was i started writing a lot more um during the, during the lockdown um i started as a, a features contributor for the onion so that was kind of a fun like i was oh, able to no still kidding yeah, I was able to use the comedy skills, like, but not in a performance capacity, but it's yeah. still kind of stretching myself and something different that I'm not used to. That's exactly what I'm talking about, too. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you're published in The Onion? Yeah, I think I can say that because, I mean, they, I'm, oh. I can, I'm a, yeah, I can't say, like, what, what it is, but I'm a, I'm a features contributor, so I just I send them a couple jokes every so often when they ask for jokes from me. Oh, so you don't get, like, a byline necessarily? No, nobody does. I mean, even okay. the people that are full-time staff writers there, which is a small, insanely talented group, no no one knows who wrote what, or at least no one should know who wrote what. Man, The Onion's like OG, right? <laughs> they were doing oh, I mean, that not shit, to, like, like, back in the early 2000s. <laughs> I mean, the first time they, like, told me that, like, they were using one of my jokes, like, I totally freaked out. And then, of course, <laughs> like, it's, I know it's, like, not a big deal to them or to a lot of other people, but I was, like, Oh my God! I'm gonna get takeout, and I did. I got takeout, and I ate the fortune cookie. <laughs> Meaningless. But yeah, no wish. <laughs> so it was. That's kind of. I've tried to do a lot more writing, not just that, but then you know, in times when I wasn't submitting stuff to them, just using that to go over old jokes, using that to like straight up do creative writing. Like I would find prompts and write short stories. I used to do a lot of that as a kid, 
just trying to really maintain some of those skills. Yeah. And that, that I found that has been really rewarding. And I when I have done shows, I've done a couple in person shows. I don't I don't know if I feel the most comfortable with it. I've done two and I, I don't know how many more I would do as the way things are now, but um Yeah. I don't feel like I slipped as much as I thought I did. And maybe I maybe I was always kind of mediocre. Maybe the pandemic didn't hurt me because I was like kind of on the Aww. bottom already. But um like I didn't I, I it wasn't as rough as a return as I thought it would be. And to that, I was like, oh, okay. I don't feel as bad about sitting in my apartment writing on my laptop then. Seeing as stand-ups use the open mic as a writing tool Mm -hmm. uh, is a necessary part of the writing process. Is writing without that, do you feel like you're able to hit the the right notes just from your experience with what people generally laugh at? Yes and no. I think it's it's easier on stuff that you really know well the stuff I was working on when COVID started was way more on the alt scene. So like when I say alt, like typically what like one of my alt sets is, is where I make like an audio recording, kind of like this podcast. I make an audio recording. I have different character voices and I go on stage and the audio recording plays and I like play all the characters. I like am lip syncing the words. I usually have props. I do a lot of shit with fake blood. Oh wow. Like one, one example that I think will be, <laughs> It's kind of prototypical of like what my, my alt stuff looks like is a Halloween piece that I like to do where I'm like a 15-year-old gay kid in Iowa and I summon the devil and I ask the devil to, to fuck me, to take my virginity. And I like have an audio track that does all of that and I play all the characters and there's like a scene where I use that same dagger from the Game of Thrones roast <laughs> and I like deep throat the dagger, but I keep these blood capsules inside my mouth. So when the dagger comes out, it's covered in blood and it looks like I just like throated a knife. Yeah. Wow. It's like that kind of stuff. And that even before COVID, you can't do that at an open mic. You can't, you know, roll up and do that. So I think doing the alternative pieces has really helped me both understand what will and will not work and also understand when something won't work and when I don't care. There are some things like like the Martina McBride thing I mentioned. It's not funny. Like, I hope I didn't give that impression. It's not good. (laughs) It's not about that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not to be like, I'm an artist, but it really, it's in that case, it was not about being funny. I was like, I think this would be really funny and I want to do it. And I did it. Did people laugh? Like a couple. Was it worth it? No, absolutely not. But like, you know, creating a space where you can do that kind of stupid shit. That's what I, that's where I'm at. I really like to do that kind of dumb stuff. And when I feel like that's, you know, while understanding audience reaction is very important, I had to kind of throw away part of that anyway. So the pandemic for the most part hasn't really affected how I write because I was already doing stuff people hated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like a lot of your material is, uh, is way outside the box too. Because when you were talking about alt comedy, I think I had like some sort of a concept about what alt comedy was and that it was like a little bit more uh, aggressive, a little bit more um, weird in some ways. But I had no idea that it was that had that much uh, uh, theatrics to it. You know what I mean? I mean, Maria Bamford, I think, is one of I mean, one of the best comics of all time, in my opinion. I, I love her. She's a great example of an alt comic. That's what alt comedy can look like for her. I think it's such a broad swath. I like the theatrics because when I was in college, before I did stand-up seriously, 
I like tried to be a drag queen. I was really bad at that. I was really bad at the makeup and the outfits, but I was really good at lip syncing and I was really good performer. And I really liked that theatricality. And so that was kind of my way of merging the two. And it came about because those types of alt performances, those are the first things I got paid to do in Chicago. The stand-up scene here is very saturated with insanely talented people. It took me you know, significantly longer to get booked on a stand-up show doing stand-up. But then my first booking in Chicago was at a gay club doing one of my weird alt things on a show that was all drag queens. Because you put a stand-up comic on a show of drag queens, no matter how good that comic is, they're going to eat shit because nothing, nothing that a stand-up comic can say is going to be as exciting as seeing like a, a nine-foot-tall woman with 40 pounds of hair and lashes like dancing, you know? Yeah. So like by doing that theatrical mix, I was able to kind of match that energy. Those are the oh, first yeah. shows I was booked on. I used to do all sorts of gay clubs. Well, that makes sense because uh, drag is so theatric. Exactly. And then eventually it kind of like that was kind of like my proof of concept. And then it's like, Hey, here's a tape of me killing it. I know this sounds horrible on paper. When I tell you what this set is, it sounds insane, <laughs> but I promise it's good. And then, then I was able to, you know, kind of do that on, on some more, um, some more like normal, you know, comedy stand up stages. Is there a, is there a sense of fucking with people to some of that of kind of fucking oh, yeah. with people's heads and like kind of getting in there and see what, see what works and what doesn't. Oh yeah. I mean like, <laughs> I, there's a really, really great show in Chicago called Shithole, and it's been going on for almost a decade, I think, or maybe six, it's been going on for like six years, and they, before the pandemic, they had it every single Sunday without fail, every Sunday for like five years straight, and they don't screen acts, I mean, you know, if you're a piece of shit person, you're not going to get on, but every Sunday they have it in either in any number of little alternative spaces throughout the city. And people do music, they do poetry, a lot of people do stand-up, people can do weird stuff. So Shithole was kind of where I would go to do, you're like, I want to try this. I don't know if I'm ready to commit 10 hours of recording and mixing and editing and choreographing to make this like a piece. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Shithole and see what this sounds like. And you would see so many cool out there things like that. And sometimes it is about fucking with people. One of, one of my, my good friends and someone uh, you might remember, Evelyn Troutman. Okay. She had a, she like recorded a rap one time about not being able to find her phone charger. It was like a minute long and she did it at shithole and like got down. I don't think she's ever done it again. Like there's definitely a space to fuck with people. Huh. I think when you want to do anything that's alty and weird, that's part of the fun. Like I said, stupid stuff. Like I was reading, I love the song Independence Day by Martina McBride. I think it's an amazing fucking song. I wanted to do a number with it and had no idea how to use it. And for some reason, I was like, what if I'm a businessman at a New Year's Eve party and everyone asks how I'm so successful and I tell them, oh, it's a curse. It's a curse I made with a witch where I have anything I dreamed of, but every time the song Independence Day by Martina McBride plays, I have to consume photographs of her. That's so stupid. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. Like there's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend that there's like a logical through line there. The point is I can eat paper. It's a small skill I have. I love that song. Those two came together and I said, I want to do this. And you know, it, of course that's definitely fucking with people. So yeah, I'm a big fan of that. There's this, uh, this bit that, uh, you know, uh, I think, uh, Christine Shaw and yeah. she had a, a, 
a performance partner and I can't remember uh, his name, but they had a bit where they would sing this song. Like, I think it was like she would dance or, and he would play a guitar and sing, uh, Christine Shaw's a horse. Christine Shaw's a horse. Look at her dancing. Look at her singing. <laughs> look at her dance like a horse. And then he just keep doing that over and 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 wouldn't stop for an incredibly long period of time. <laughs> and they described the audience reaction as first, very funny, lots of laughs, right. then zero laughs. And then after like five or six repetitions, all of a sudden there was some more giggling. And then after, you know, like 10 repetitions, it was like hysterical laughter. It's like, they just can't believe that it's still going because yeah. they already went through the entire eat shit like phase where there's no laughter and this is dumb and then just didn't stop. And then at some point, like it's hysterical laughter again, which is a weird oh, yeah. thing, right? I think it goes, you know, to circle it back. I think that is improv energy. That idea of like, you're committing to an idea so hard that even if the idea is not good, and that's not saying the idea isn't, but even if the idea is weak or it doesn't immediately make sense, you put so much of yourself into it that people cannot help but be invested. Yeah. You know, I was actually just reading something about improv teams uh, being paid to go and do events and to do little like stints, like pretend to be uh, go to a high school reunion and pretend to be people that no one can remember. And oh, wow. Weird things like that where people would like hire them to just to fuck with people <laughs> or or conversely not to fuck with them, but to like go to a a a branding event or something or like a trade show and do some sort of performance at the booth, uh, to, you know, attract attention. And it made me think of this, uh, there was this improv group in New York that like would do weird projects like that in public to fuck with people. Oh, and, like the subway people. Yeah. 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 And there was the one time they went to a concert of a band and it was like a, like a Tuesday night show that they weren't expecting very many people. And yep. this improv troupe came in and just packed the place, and they all knew the lyrics, and they all they they act like they just it was a show. They 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 were pretending, but they like had all the lyrics down. They had all the you know they were just like super fans on a Tuesday night, you know, at ten or whatever. Yeah, which it was kind of in the piece I was listening to. It was kind of sad because the band was a little bit hurt. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like. Hey man, fuck yeah. you. We weren't expecting anything out of this show, you know. We were just like filling a night, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I thought at first I thought that was sweet, and then as I was like, yeah, I guess I could see how if you're the band, that's like, oh, a little bit sad. Yeah, well, I think for them it was like they they got the energy from it, and they were like, yeah, it felt great, you know. The energy felt really good, and they were responding to it and really getting into the set, you know. And then at some point right. realizing that the, that it was a farce and that they were being fucked with and they were just kind of like felt like suckers, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Which is, a, yeah, that's kind of an ego killer at that point. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like when you find out your, your partner has always been faking an orgasm or something. Oh, or like, and this is part of the reason, I think most comics, you don't like having your friends at shows unless it's like a big show. When um, whenever you see someone that's doing stand up like for the first time at an open mic, usually all their friends come, which is like the worst thing. Never do that. Yeah. And like those those fake laughs that your friends will give you, are the most 
heartbreaking laughs. Like it's worse than silence because you're like, this person loves me uh, false positive. and they will not admit that I'm bad and yeah. it hurts you. Yeah. That's, that's a very interesting point that, that kind of uh, that false feedback. It's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not genuine. It's meant in love. The best of mm-hmm. intentions, man. Are you one of the comics that goes to an open mic and loves to watch somebody eat shit? Oh, no. No, I mean. <laughs> You're like, no, I'm a good person. <laughs> Who are you yeah. thinking of? Yeah, I like to think I'm like a good person. No one likes to see anyone do badly. I think there's something that some comics like don't necessarily like. It's not because they hate the person or want anything bad for them, but it's just like there's that pain laughter connection. Mm-hmm. So for a comic that understands exactly what's happening, it can like it can trigger them to to think it's funny. Oh, I mean, yeah, I definitely this. get that. <laughs> yeah, and half of comics are all assholes anyway. So oh, I mean, absolutely. I think there's you know I won't lie. If there's someone you don't like, of course you get joy in seeing them do terribly. <laughs> that I think is different. If it's someone that I really don't know, like I'm ne- I'm never gonna feel good about them doing super bad. Um, yeah, I don't think it's that but it some, feels good. It's just the, like the laughing at an awkward situation or something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, like there's an enjoyment in it because, you know, we were talking about if you want to do some alt stuff, how you're like, you have to kind of say fuck you to the audience. Yeah. I think eating shit at an open mic and thinking that you're crushing is another way of saying fuck you to the audience. So in that sense, when I watch, sometimes I'm rooting for them in kind of like a punk rock way. It's like, good for you. Like you are rejecting yeah. everything you're supposed to be doing and you think you're killing it, I do like that. There's there's a lot of... <laughs> when so, when someone's eating shit, and they know they're eating shit, it's depressing. Yeah, I, I feel bad for them. I want to give them a hug. But when someone's up there, and they're like, I'm the fucking smartest and funniest person in the world, and they just suck, oh, I eat that shit up. Oh, that is wow. so good. That is, like, that is like a drug. So actually, maybe I am a bad person. <laughs> so that's actually like... You're talking about just kind of like a, a blind ignorance kind of thing where they they have this idea in their head and they're not looking they're looking through the world with rose tinted glasses or something yeah or um you'll see some people that go up and their goal is clearly not to be funny their goal is to say the thing they want to say and get off and i have a respect for that too (laughs) there are folks you see who go up and they say they say shit that are not jokes they say stuff that is not funny they don't try to make it funny they say the same we'll call it a set every five nights a week for four years and it's like this person does this because it brings them joy and even though it's excruciating to everyone else you know i have a respect for that yeah you know get what you want out of life good for you yeah and open mics are supposed to be a place that that's acceptable like no, to yeah. an extent you don't... unless what they're saying is like mm-hmm. shitty meaning harmful or whatever open but... mics suck why would yeah never never judge a comic by what they do on an open mic well no i i feel like yeah, open mics are, are supposed to be writing sessions that you get to be a part of, which is the pleasure of it. I, I've My favorite thing about going to open mics is seeing the tweaks. As a person that watches stand-up and has never done it, watching an open mic and seeing the same bit done different ways and the way that, that they get tweaked and the way that responses are different is like looking behind the curtain, man. It's so fascinating to me. Right. And then seeing no, somebody do a bit that they've never tried before, like a brand new bit, and like so warm the audience up with a couple classic, uh, you know, funny lines, and then break in some new material and see how they respond to it. And I was, uh, I don't, do you know Dan Seabree? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah Dan, Dan and I are both from Dayton. 
Oh, no kidding. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I saw him do new material at an open mic and then at the shrunken head and come off and uh, be like, oh, never doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> it's so that's to me, that's so much fun. But it is kind of meta. It's it, yeah. Yeah. If you're going there expecting to, to see uh, a finished product, you're not going to get what you want. Yeah. And it's kind of um, it's interesting, too, because like no one likes to do badly, but. You also, it's it's almost worse if you see a comic at an open mic and they're all, they're doing their tight five at every open mic. It's like, what are they? And they're not doing tweaks. It's like, what are you? What's the purpose of you doing this? Yeah. What are you getting out of this? Like that's that's one of, one of the pleasures, like you said, is seeing tweaks. I get to see at open mics. You get to see amazing comics that you know in a real show could just murder, and you see them suck. And it's kind of like that reminder that oh, these people, like the actually truly great comics, they're not just waking up and saying. Here is an amazing joke, and I'm going to go tell this amazing joke, and it's going to be incredible, and my life is great. No, they're going out, and they're telling this shitty joke, and then it's a shitty joke, and then it's a less shitty joke, and they do that for like three weeks, and then it's a great joke. Yeah. That's cool. I, that's, that's inspiring to see that, like you said. For sure, for sure. And I've heard stories of uh, well-known like national comics uh, talking about their, their process on different uh, – of the myriad uh, comedy podcasts that exist in the world uh, talking about how they'll try material at a, at an open mic and people will be pissed and be like, that's you suck, you know, and like, <laughs> it, and want to, yeah. And, and be expecting it to be like their, uh, you know, HBO uh, release or whatever. And it's like, no, that's, you know, it's not how this works. Right. <laughs> Let's say you're Dave Chappelle or any huge, you know, A-list comic. You can't really do open mics. I mean, you can, but like, there's this expectation that you're good all the time. Yeah. And you know, when you're at that level, of, you work your new material into one of your normal, you know, sellout shows. <laughs> like, I don't know, um, man, because the way I hear it from a lot of these comics, like on uh, when Marin talks about it and Rogan, and you know, not that I'm a huge Rogan fan, don't get the wrong impression. <laughs> you live what, in Ohio and you have a beard. We know. Oh fuck. And I have a podcast studio in my basement. God damn it. <laughs> anyway, uh, they talk about getting time at the comedy store, you know, so they're going to the p top peer open mics, you know, where people are actually paying good money, like, you know, whatever the cost of tickets is, but people are paying good money to get in and see these open mics, right? Right. I guess I feel like there's a lot of top tier comics that are still open micing it. Isn't that true? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're open micing. I mean, they're not like... Like even there though, like you said, people pay top money. Their open mic is a lot of other comics' big show. Like if you go to the Comedy Cellar in New York, you'll see huge comics drop in to try new material. But everyone that's there paid like a fifteen dollar ticket and it sold out. Yeah. So it's like for a for a normal comic, you're on the Comedy Cellar, you know, career milestone. Right. Like huge. Then <laughs> you know you're you're Seinfeld or you're someone um, who else who lives in New York and wants to pop down there. It's like, let me see if this material works. But you're not seeing if it works to this crowd that doesn't care. You're seeing if it works to this crowd who is like, we are here to see the best comedy in the city. Yeah, okay. So it's not an open mic per se. It's really <laughs> like a, like a, a lower-tier comedian's uh, pinnacle moment. And like the, the top-tier comic just pops in and does some bullshit to open it or something. Yeah. Like, or I think maybe it's they're just closing a... it with their open mic type thing. That's Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. They just, I mean, I don't, 
as a rule, I don't pity anyone that's a millionaire, but like yeah. they just have an expectation no matter what level they perform at. Whereas I go to a bar and I do an open mic, no one gives a shit if I'm bad. You know, you have that pressure if you're, you're a really established comic. And again, that pressure, while that sounds scary, definitely, you know, don't feel bad. I don't feel bad for them. They, they are, they're happy. They're doing well. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. You're right. It's hard to be hard to be too upset. Never trust an entertainer that's always complaining, right? Oh yeah, God. <laughs> who was it? Um, trying to remember one of the celebrities who was like on an early two thousands teen show, like the ones who just make a lot of money and then they disappear. Those are the ones who, like, when they hate fame, like you can tell they're just like, I made ten million dollars, I will live off of interest for the rest of my life and be happy. Yeah, I have respect for that. Or like, the, uh, like like Daniel yeah. Day Lewis who goes and does some like crazy award winning role and then disappears for ten years to learn how to make fucking shoes or something. Yeah, yeah, that's you know I believe you. You're in it for the art. Good for you. I mean, I'd like to think that uh, everybody's in it for the art and that we're all a little bit you know judgmental on what constitutes you know art. There's definitely oh, yeah. people that are just you know, trying to crank out some bullshit. I, I don't know. Like w- when I'm listening to music, I have like friends that'll be like, I don't know if I believe them. I don't know if their heart's in it. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I also think it's a weird expectation. I, given the chance, I would sell out so quickly. Like if, if I was told tomorrow I could make those like Adam Sandler style Netflix movies, you know, He's a great comic, really impactful. Those movies suck. Like, if I was told I could do those and I could get paid $5 million for each of them, do you think I would care if I was creating art? Absolutely not. Oh, my God. Like, you know, at a certain level there, it's like, of course you would sell out. Like, this belief, like, you know, I really want to stick to my integrity and I just want to be poor forever. Fuck off. Oh, my God. Yeah, and that can be a a sign of privilege, too, because uh, you got to fucking pay the bills. You got to eat. Yeah, there's this, um, oh God, I'm trying to remember what it's called. There's a book I read that had a chapter about that, like this whole idea of a starving artist is kind of pulled from these people that didn't actually starve, you know? Because like your, your real starving artists typically never pursued art careers because they were like, oh, I need to keep this job at the corner store to support myself and my elderly mother and my two younger siblings. But then this idea of like, oh, I'm a starving artist, a lot of those people are really wealthy and, you know, if you want to ruin your day, look up your favorite celebrity and just keep going down the list and see how many of them were born like into millionaire families. It's so depressing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a part of uh, the idea of that there is a class system. It's not as uh, defined as perhaps other systems in the past have been, you know, but there's definitely like some sort of a system to it. You generally are within a few clips of your parents' uh, wage earnings, no matter what, right? Yeah. And with entertainment in particular, if the people that are able to access those spaces come from a certain privileged background, the content they put out, regardless of how talented they are, is going to have that lens. I think a really good contemporary example is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who really, really talented, very smart, great actress. She you know, was the creative force behind Fleabag, which is a great show. I really liked Fleabag. She grew up like she's like descended from British royalty. And, and she, she admits that. But no matter what level of self-awareness you have, 
you're going to write from that perspective in some way. That's a flea bag written by her looks very different to a flea bag written by uh, the the child of a single mother who grew up in a in rural Appalachia, living paycheck to paycheck on public assistance. You know, they could yeah. be given the same assignment, have the same level of talent, and that will look incredibly different. So, it's the accessibility of those spaces and the whole you know reason why the whole starving artist thing is bullshit. It's like so many artists I know who do genuinely have like some interesting thing to say or they come from like a, a harder background, they can't do that. They can't go to LA and live out of their car. Yeah. Like they've got to support themselves. They don't have they can't call their parents and be like, My dream didn't work out. Can you buy me a plane ticket home and help me get a job? Like that's not a thing for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, a matter of fact, I I, I think I just uh, saw uh, that very situation play out. I believe it was with a musician that was from Columbus. Ended up taking a job and and moving with his uh, with his band or whatever to uh, somewhere I don't know in the in the west uh, somewhere mm-hmm. in the Midwest like further west than us obviously like Kansas or something like that. In any case, yeah, pandemic hits that job goes away and dude's got no money to move back to Ohio, you know, to get back right. to his family and also no money to live there. Whoa. You know what I mean? Like there's, that's, it's a scary move. Absolutely. I guess maybe it's less scary when you're young. So that's why it's a good idea for you at 23 to be making a big jump like that. Right. Cause uh, you're going right. to be living off of ramen noodles here or there. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to give any pretense. Like I have like a, I have like an adult job. Like, yeah, right, right. That was a thing that I consciously pursued. I was like, I want to make sure that I'm able to support myself because, I mean, I'm I grew I grew up fine, but like we, you know, had some economic uncertainty when I was a child. Yeah. And to me, I was that was a pretty you know important thing that I really wanted to get out of college. Is like I want to make sure that I'm able to pay my bills because that was a thing that I was worried about growing up. So like, that's a you know a different mindset than like I have friends who you know very talented, very great people maybe don't have that perspective that where it's like yeah i'm gonna just like live off of nothing and go move to new york and do this for a year and that that terrifies me like i couldn't do that because of like my perspective like that is too frightening for me yeah i I think that there's an an idea that we have that struggle is uh good for art right (laughs) yeah and in the same vein uh the people say depression is good for comedy i guess Oh my God. Right. Hate that. It's kind of like one of these, uh, it's kind of a shitty thing to, to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, but then again, like when you see somebody that's comes from a really wealthy family, gentrifying a part of town with their trust fund or whatever and making art, um, it does kind of leave a weird taste in your mouth. I'm not against it. I'm, I'm just, it just, uh, it, as a person that grew up poor, it feels weird to me. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I mean, like I was like Fleabag, if you haven't watched, you should. It's great. It's a piece of art. It stands on its own. It doesn't invalidate, like her background does not invalidate that it's a great piece of art. But I think there's a recognition that other people could create the same thing or maybe something that resonates even more who didn't have that posh of a background, let's say. I do love some of these stories. like uh ben sinclair are you familiar with uh, high maintenance yeah 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 yeah. i could be wrong i don't think he had the uh i don't think he had the uh 
the parents helping him out. And he graduated from uh, right here in, in uh, central Ohio at Otterbine. And oh, hell yeah. Then he started creating high maintenance as an independent. Oh, Oberlin. He went to Oberlin. Oberlin, my bad. I get all my, no, o, o, my, <laughs> my Ohio O colleges mixed up, damn it. Anyway, but yeah, uh, he uh, started making that YouTube series, High Maintenance, and then HBO eventually picked it up, and it's like, oh, fuck yeah, that's so cool, because that show is so original and beautiful, and the way that it presents humanity, and, and the way that, and its comedy. I, I'm not sure if you've watched it at all, but it is mwah, chef's kiss, you know? <laughs> yeah. Another one is uh, like uh, like the Letter Kenny. That one was an independent show that got picked up by some Canadian uh, broadcast company and then went on to get picked up by uh, like Hulu and whatever. Right. It's, it's like these guys are, I don't know, there's, there's, there is some opportunity for, for people to break through without the connections with the internet, I guess. Yeah. You're no, I mean, still absolutely. competing with every connection that exists already. <laughs> and they get more power yeah, than no. you do, even if they're less creative, you know? No, and that's where um, you kind of like, with this whole idea that when you're depressed, you're going to create better art or like sadness and all that drives this. I think that comes from a, a privileged position of I'm, I've not had to struggle. Let me, and this is me projecting, but like, I've not had to struggle. Let me create some type of struggle for myself to overcome and inspire my art where it's like when people are genuinely like struggling or poor or don't have access to resources, they never think like, wow, God, I'm, making such good paintings they're like fuck how am i going to feed myself you know? i'm in such a great position to create art no like i the best <laughs> stuff i've made you know and it's hard to it's hard to judge like what is good or what is bad like on your own stuff but i think the best work i've done comedically or artistically you know that sounds pretentious like has been when i've been happy and fulfilled <laughs> like yeah um like it's never i've i work like the the most prolific writing period of my life was when I was in like a very stable long-term relationship. Um, I had a job. Like I've, I've never been in like a really bad place emotionally. I've been like, God, the stuff I'm writing is so good. Like, you know, I'm best able to create or do something like that when I have all of those other basic needs met. And I think that's something that um, com comedians are getting a little more comfortable talking about. Like, Hey, like I want to be a comedian but I don't want to constantly be on the verge of wanting to kill myself. Is that okay? And the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there might be, and this is just a hypothesis or an idea I have, but I, I think there might be a connection between uh, depression and, and comics. If there is one, if it's not just complete oh, absolutely. bullshit, but it's that depression makes you sensitive. It makes you understand humanity in a different way. Right. I, I don't know how much that makes sense just the way I said it, but I feel like, like, cause I have, I deal with depression on the regular and it, and it makes me, it gets me in my head all the time and it gets me thinking about why I think the way I think and all that shit. And it seems like comedians do have that kind of uh, intuition for what people are thinking and why. Right. I know just about every comedian I've talked to about depression is fucking tired of hearing it. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it's clown. just kind of like you said. I get it. it. It's a common denominator for a reason. Like you said, people might be more sensitive and more empathetic. I don't think it's the driver. No. I think that's the thing that people get tripped up on is they think that that's what makes someone create good or bad whatever. It's like, 
Yeah, and people who, like you mentioned, you struggle with depression. People that I, I know who have, you know, very serious depression, they're not like, this is my, like, inspirational tool. Like, it's like a battle. It's like a difficult struggle. It's not this fun writing buddy. Yeah. It's a thing that nobody wants. People would happily be rid of it. Yeah, I do wonder sometimes if people like, uh, you know, Seinfeld or uh, Jim Gaffigan uh, yeah. <laughs> deal with depression, you know, or... Uh, Who's that one uh, famous clean comic, uh, Brian Regan? Yeah, you know these these people strike me as uh, <laughs> is is like not having that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe they maybe they do, but I think it's just we we're so less um, stigmatized about mental health now that way more modern comics talk about that stuff and have jokes about their mental health. Um, yeah. Whereas I don't think that was really a thing you could do as much back in the day. Yeah, like that's that's a comedic style now. Like there are people that, to to both good and bad degrees, that like their their jokes are almost entirely about their mental health. Yeah, and I, I enjoy. I, I think I enjoy some of that because I think that it's one of the things that I get out of comedy is uh, understanding that we're all dealing with the same shit, that we all have yeah. the same thoughts and we have the same uh, insecurities and so on, right? And I feel like right. that's one of the one of the powerful things about comedy is that it's like you don't you don't want to admit it but we're all thinking it and you know it's okay we can you know we can deal we can process that out right here you know let me help you and i'll just kind of make fun of it with you you know and look at how silly we all are right but yeah no i absolutely agree man we've been talking a while dude this has been great i thank you so much for uh coming on uh pizza smudging the new uh newly branded show (laughs) thank you for having me um i I'm delighted to be on pizza smudging. I didn't make that like saging connection until you'd said it earlier, but who, who came up with that again? Was it that was, Paige? Uh, Paige Pelesnak. Yeah. From uh, Pittsburgh. Pitts- Pittsburgh. I did. Yeah. No, I did a show with her. I did one show with her in Pittsburgh right before I moved. Oh, cool. And you know, she, <laughs> uh, me and Olivia Smith and AS green went to Pittsburgh to do this, this queer show and a, like they all crushed it. Um, I, I was not great because it was, it was a queer show, but this was very specifically like a 65 plus year old butch lesbian show. Like these were, (laughs) and these, these were like your lesbians that renovate condos and like all, all wear like Nancy Pelosi is a girl boss kind of hats. Like this was that group. And like my set at the time, like the, the kind of centerpiece was me telling the story of how. I lost my virginity by sneaking into a rehab facility to sleep with someone. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, it was a cultural mismatch. It, they were not my people. <laughs> yeah, at least you weren't eating pictures, man. Yeah. Oh my God. I think about that. Like, if I mean, Chicago is a really forgiving scene, but I was like, God, if I showed up to like the trunk of the head or bossy girls, I could get away with it. But like, if I went to um, Zeno's back when Zeno's existed in Columbus, and I just started eating, oh, they might like it. That place was pretty. Pretty deathly. Let's say Shrunken Head. Yeah, if I go to Shrunken Head and I, I'm like, hey, can you play Martina McBride while I eat this paper? They would have been like, hey, dude, why don't you come back next week? You know, uh, you know, next time you're in Columbus, the way that you could employ that hidden talent of eating paper is to uh, clean up after <laughs> Wonder Dog. Oh, you know, it's crazy. I've done so many of his shows and I've never, I've never helped him out in that way. You think Just I, sit behind him a and great eat idea, his Mel. note cards. <laughs> So yeah, Lampshade Media presents Pizza Smudging. 
thank you so much again for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is this is minor, but like, I hate your name. I mean, it's God damn it, pizza smudging. I I don't know. There's just something really off about it. Um, I personally, I don't think it's really appropriate for us as you know non-indigenous folks or non witch folks to you know kind of misappropriate smudging um oh. to ceremonial cleansing and i think to connect pizza to it shows this you know kind of egregious lack of understanding of those groups um and anyone that would come up with that idea does not have a place in 2020 wow this is um, only the second time that uh, somebody has uh, blasted one of our names for uh, for a, a lack of wokeness look which look, i appreciate I'm just saying, you need it's a witch thing. You need to you need to pay attention to the witches. I need to save that for the witches. Let the witches speak. Yeah, let the witches speak. I think, you know, we are two white men on a podcast talking about economics. So, <laughs> I think I personally, I'm I think we should call this like Federal Reserve gone wild. All right, all right. I could see the uh, I could see the branding opportunities uh, with that going forward. You could fool so many libertarians into thinking it's about abolishing the Fed, <laughs> and that is my target audience. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it in the comments of a Joe Rogan video on YouTube, and YouTube, this is going to take off. That is perfect, man. Yeah, I'm going to be spamming all the uh, I don't know. Would you call Joe Rogan center right? I, I don't know what I would call Joe Rogan, and I'm really glad that I don't. <laughs> All right, well, we'll just move on from that and go back to uh, back to Lampshade Media Presents. Federal Reserve Board Gone Wild. Sounds uh, sexy and intelligent. I was going to say, the whole. The, I guess it would technically be Federal Reserve Board of Governors Gone Wild, but I, I think people get it. People know we're talking <laughs> gets a, about gets the governors. It's a little wordy. <laughs> All right, man. Well, you know what? Like... I am definitely feeling the name, man. I'm very excited about the future of the podcast now. I have a sense of uh, of calmness and and you know a sense of sureness about the future now. So I want to I want to say thank you for that, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad I'm glad to be able to help out. Oh yeah, man, dude. It is. Uh, yeah, it's been a fucking blast talking to you. Thank you so much, and thanks for uh, getting uh, getting heady with me on uh, economics and tribalism and marketing I, I do love geeking out on that stuff so i appreciate it man it might not be fun for anyone else but no i it's i appreciate it it's fun to be able to use my degree or use some of that experience there i love i love talking about economics and it always <laughs> devolves into like is economics real <laughs> once again man much love for you and have fun in chicago stay safe keep going man yeah thank you you too all right later later this program is produced by Lampshade Media, hosted by Mel Milliman, music by Tyson Shipman, graphic design by Griffin Browning, social media by Sam Welch, voiceover by Ryan Branch, and a special thank you to our sponsors, Paddy Wagon Food and The Garden. <laughs>